0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, October 13th. I'm Doug Blair. And
1: I'm Virginia Allen. Anti-racist rhetoric is not really rhetoric at all, and in fact relies most heavily upon intimidation to achieve its goal, Eric Smith says. Smith is a professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of Free Black Thought. He joins the show today to discuss why critical social justice anti-racism is not true anti-racism and why the message of victimhood is so dangerous to the African-American community.
0: And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news.
1: Democrats appear to be slashing their $3.5 trillion spending bill down to $2 trillion. Reduction of the bill's cost comes only a few days after West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin said he would not support a spending bill over $1.5 trillion. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Tuesday that Democrats are working to reduce the bill's cost down to $2 trillion per The Hill.
2: We have some important decisions to make in the next few days so that we can proceed. Uh, I'm very disappointed that we're not going with the original $3.5 trillion, which was very transformative. Pelosi added
1: that the reduced bill will still be transformative and largely have the same focus as the previous spending package.
2: The uh, Build Back Better is three baskets. It's climate, which we spent some time talking about already health, jobs, security, and moral responsibility, It's health care, fam- uh, the issues that relate to the Affordable Care Act, Medicare and Medicaid, and family care. I mentioned some of those issues already. And so uh, whatever we do, it will be transformative. It will produce results. And we would are very grateful to our president for saying, I want to pass the bipartisan, bipartisan, um, legislation.
1: Pelosi did not say when the new reduced social spending bill will be ready for review or a vote.
0: On Tuesday, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, would no longer be conducting worksite raids. In a memo to Acting ICE Director Tay Johnson, Mayorkas said... The deployment of mass worksite operations, sometimes resulting in the simultaneous arrest of hundreds of workers, was not focused on the most pernicious aspect of our country's unauthorized employment challenge—exploitative employers. Worksite raids were a common part of the Trump administration's immigration enforcement policy, but were sharply cut back under President Joe Biden. The move reflects President Biden's more lax policies regarding illegal immigration Two weeks ago, Secretary Mayorkas announced that illegal immigrants would no longer be deported based on immigration status alone.
1: Eleven state-level school board groups are trying to put distance between themselves and a National School Board Association letter to President Joe Biden. Earlier this month, the National School Boards Association asked Biden in a letter for help to identify and assess threats of violence made by parents against school board members. Several days later, Attorney General Merrick Garland ordered the FBI and federal prosecutors to meet with federal, state, and local leaders to look into what Garland says is a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence being made against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. Now, state-level school boards in Arkansas, Florida, Missouri, Montana, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and Louisiana have criticized the letter and say they were not consulted before it was sent. The state school boards in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Texas also say the National School Boards Association did not consult them before sending the letter. The Florida School Board told the National School Board Association's leadership on Monday that the letter they sent to Biden has caused serious concerns, conflict, and consternation for many of our members. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Eric Smith, co-founder of Free Black Thought, as we discuss the danger of the victim narrative within critical social justice on college campuses and within society. Our interview was recorded at the Parents Unite Conference in Boston, Massachusetts earlier this month, so please do excuse any background noise. Hi, I'm Virginia Allen. I want to tell you all about an awesome Heritage Foundation resource called the Index of Economic Freedom. The Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom ranks nearly every nation in the world according to its level of economic freedom. Whether for personal, professional use, or for school research, the index is a wealth of information. You can learn why it's easier to start a business in Switzerland than it is in France, and where America falls on the ranking. So go ahead and visit heritage.org index to explore the newly released 2021 Index of Economic Freedom, which features interactive maps, country rankings, graphs of data, and much, much more. I am so pleased to be joined by Eric Smith. He's an associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania and the co-founder of Free Black Thought. Eric, thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So Eric, you are also a senior fellow for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. You're also an author. Your latest book, A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, and you, uh, you co-founded an organization, as I mentioned, called Free Black Thought. That really interests me. Explain a little bit about Free Black Thought. What do you all do? What's your mission?
3: Well, I can start by talking about my background regarding this. Well, not my background, my recent uh, background. In my field, there are a handful of people who are insisting that they're speaking for an entire race. Um, And this is a multicultural group of people. It's not just black people saying we know everything about black people. Um, And when I try to push back on that, you know, I could, you know, uh, significant vitriol. And um, I was a little annoyed by that. And not just because of their behavior, but because of the, I'll be frank, idiocy of thinking they can speak for 50 million individuals. Um, So... I found some like-minded souls. We put together Free Black Thought, which is basically a showcase of viewpoint diversity within the black intelligentsia. And uh, we have scholars, uh, we have a compendium uh, in which we list uh, various topics having to do with race from a variety of scholars who are not uh, parroting um, the um, quote-unquote woke ideology that we get you know, most prominently in the media. Scholarly writers, uh, you know, op-eds, artists, poets, fiction writers—it uh, runs the gamut. We also have a journal, of Free Black Thought, uh, in which we take submissions, vet them, uh, work with authors, and and finally publish it on our website. Um, same principle, you know—it's um, about viewpoint diversity, uh, letting people realize that uh, people of color, specifically Black people, are not a monolith and they have different things to say, and here's a place where they can say it. Mm. So uh, we're pretty dedicated to that. Uh, the future may hold, you know, something like a podcast or, you know, uh, a panel discussion. You know, we, we've co-sponsored those already, so, I mean, that's already, uh, the ball's already rolling on that. Uh, but right now, we have the compendium, we have the journal, and... You know, we have opportunities like this to oh, talk that's about.
1: Excellent. it. Excellent. I might be a little bit biased on the podcast front, but I would say do it <laughs> yeah. if you can.
2: Yeah,
1: it's a great resource for individuals. Well, as I as I read some of your work, Eric, I I found myself realizing, you know, you really have a theme that I feel like runs throughout a lot of your thinking, and that's encouraging people to think for themselves, to actually use their mind to maybe question some of the the narratives that we're Mm -hmm. hearing about, uh, you know, things like racism or or wokeism or justice and what those things mean. Do you think that that's a pretty fair assessment of something you're trying to do?
3: Uh, Definitely. Um, I just recently uh, taught Emerson's self-reliance in a course I teach called American Philosophical Thought. Uh, it's called philosophical thought and not philosophy because you know, there are some people we have in that class, uh, some authors we're reading that aren't technically philosophers, uh, but they have thoughtful pieces, and I have my students read them. Um, we just went over self-reliance, which is all about thinking for yourself, you know, um, not feeling like you need to conform, right? Um, embracing nonconformity and, you know... Uh, Everything that is the opposite of what seems to be happening among uh, anti-racist circles, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So I think, and there's a poet named, well, he was here. I I don't think he's alive anymore. Joseph Brodsky, who basically said that, you know, the cure to evil is individualism, right? Groupthink is, you know, evil's best friend. Hmm. Right. But individuality and, and somebody who is originally themselves authentically their idiosyncratic self, that person is harder to uh, incorporate into uh, your strategy. Right. Uh, so I really I felt that, you know, and I feel that. And I recall reading Emerson when I was 18 and carrying that book around like the Bible, you know, because it really spoke to me. It said what I had been feeling but couldn't articulate hmm. At the time, so um, I am not surprised at all that you gleaned, you know, that thread throughout all my writing. We don't appreciate individuality the way we should. <laughs> um, communal thinking is a good thing. We have to do it, you know, right. And um, many would say we're hardwired to do it. But if we're not individually sound, we're not going to be the best members of, of, a, of a particular group, especially if that group is a nation. Yeah. Right. So uh, yes, I'm. I want to make individuality cool again.
1: <laughs> I love that. Well, you're you're taking me back to my college days here. I you know we I read a lot of Alexis de Tocqueville, and that's yeah. so I know something he talked about that you know individual individualism is actually kind of a safeguard for yeah. democracy, which is yeah. very very fascinating. So you are a professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. Do you find that the young people you're teaching in your classes are, are open to these other perspectives? Are they coming in eager to use their brains and to think or reason? Or are you really having to, to challenge them to do that?
3: Well, to be fair, in the time of COVID, you know, um, they're a little distracted by other things. What's more, there are students who are sophomores right now, but it's their first year in a classroom. Wow. Right, so they're supposed to be farther along than they are socially on a college campus, um, as well as you know understanding the uh, dynamics of a college classroom. So you know that has a lot to do with it. Um, but regarding open-mindedness or and and resistance to anything um, I'm talking about, I haven't really encountered that. I did do a talk two days ago on the detriments of critical social justice in the classroom and got some significant pushback hmm. including from a dean who told me I was lying. Hmm. <laughs> I was li- my dean didn't believe that a conference like parents, you know, like this, right, could exist. Hmm. Like because there are not people who are up in arms because this isn't happening, right? So I want to send him this recording, right? <laughs> send him a recording of the whole conference. No message, just the link. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I can't wait to do that. Um, But yes, I mean, there is some pushback, but in general it's, it's not that bad
1: that's good that's encouraging to hear yeah. because i think there's a lot of talk about you know college students and mm-hmm. the next generation coming up how do we how do we empower students to think for themselves what do you think as a professor are are some of the the greatest challenges that students are facing right now and then for you as a professor what are some of those challenges that you're facing and trying to help your students navigate through
3: Last semester, spring semester, I taught a course in which the primary text was Benjamin Boyce's uh, docu series on Evergreen State College. Um, that was a deep dive into what was going on um, regarding uh, race-based activism at, on a college campus. I'm not um, scared that that will happen on my campus, not to that extent anyway, but I'm concerned because I some students uh, said to me, and I got this from the writings of other students, so I could glean that, that they thought they were missing something. You know, um, The illogic that is inherent in a lot of uh, anti-racist activism you know, um, is illogical, and it is absurd. But when they looked at this and made that interpretation, they, they insisted, I must be missing something. It must be my positionality or something like that. This can't be this absurd. Right, and you know, trying to tell them it, it, it is, you know, <laughs> is 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 hard because you want them to come to their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. You know, so biting my tongue and, and 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 not saying no, it's absurd. You're right. Was difficult for me, and looking at this, you know, uh, illogical way of doing things is difficult for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know how to process it immediately
1: we are talking with eric smith the associate professor of rhetoric at york college of pennsylvania and the co-founder of free black thought eric you have also written a book a critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition the semblance of empowerment so in the book you address some of the detriments of anti-racist rhetoric just explain this a little bit further why do you see anti-racist rhetoric as detrimental
3: because it's not rhetoric in a lot of ways uh, rhetoric takes into consideration audience uh, uh, rhetorical context or what is called Kairos the confluence of time place subject matter people um, it doesn't do that instead of gauging an audience and speaking accordingly it's more like I am fill in the blank hear me roar <laughs> right uh, there's no there's no uh, sincere, attempt to persuade you know it's uh it's an attempt to intimidate it's an attempt to uh just show people you're here you're not going anywhere it's an attempt to acquire a sense of dignity Hmm. right and you can acquire dignity without ruining the concept of rhetoric Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm seeing that happening uh within the field rhetoric is being usurped for a specific purpose the teaching of rhetoric you know, has to do with audience consideration. I mean, if you want to boil it down, well, I won't boil it down. I'll use Aristotle's definition. Rhetoric is the ability in any given situation to discern the available means of persuasion, meaning that you're going to say the same message differently to one group than you are to another group. Anti-racist just say, forget about the groups. I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. Because uh, you know it's the right thing to say, and you know um, that's not quite what rhetorical education is.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and here at the the Parents Unite Conference, yes. where uh, where we are, um, we've heard a lot about the importance of defining terms. So even even saying something like anti-racist, mm-hmm. people have a lot of different ideas and different definitions right. of of what that is. How how can we broadly think about that term? Um, maybe how should we think about that term? Yes.
3: Yeah, we do need operational definitions, right? Uh, agreeing upon certain terms before we even start talking about them. Um, I just said anti-racism without qualifying it, you know, assuming that you knew what I was talking about. Your listeners know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, I probably shouldn't assume that. Um, anti-racism on the surface is a good thing. Anti-racism through the filter of what many call critical social justice is not. That form of anti-racism is what you get with uh, Evergreen State College and um, other small liberal arts colleges that are uh, following suit. So anti-racism itself, good thing. Anti-racism in contemporary CSJ terms, not so good. So that's how I'm using the term.
1: Excellent. No, thank you for defining that. Excuse me. Ibram X. Kendi, he's the author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And Kendi has has really been driving much of America's conversation Mm -hmm. on that modern definition, like you say, of anti-racism. Have you ever spoken with Kendi before? No. You haven't? No. What would you want to say? If you could sit down and have lunch with him, what would you like to to talk with him about? And do you think that you all could actually have a productive conversation?
3: Um, I think he is, you know, civil enough to have a productive conversation if he finds himself inadvertently in the room with me. (laughs) Um, I don't think he'd go into the room. (laughs) But if somehow, by some accident, He ended up in a room and I was there. I think he would be civil. (laughs) Um, That being said, uh, I would want to talk to him about this department of anti-racism that he uh, seems to be pushing and its implications. In order to have a – he's talking about a branch of government. In order to have that, a branch of government, and justify an anti-racist branch of government, you need racism. right? You need a reason for it. So, if you're going to have a branch of government, that implies that you want this thing to last for a while, which is to say that you need racism to last for a while. So, I, I, I would want him to uh, explain, you know, uh, his rationale behind, you know, uh, this uh, anti-racist department. Of government.
1: So, in the same way that we have a Department of, of Labor, essentially, Kendi is advocating that we have a Department of Anti-Racism within the government.
3: Yes. Okay. Yes, and I find that very interesting.
1: That that is very very fascinating. Yeah, yeah I think that would be a great question. I would also love to yeah. love to hear a, a conversation between the two of you talking about that. So would I.
3: <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's 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 difficult to find people, you know, who may call themselves critical social justice activists or you know, uh, may abide by what people are calling critical race theory in praxis, right? It's hard to get them to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, they refuse to do that. And they mainly refuse to do that because to talk to me is to dignify me, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, I'm, they're dignifying my opinion by having the conversation. So they need to you know, squelch the conversation altogether. I mean, that's a tactic. That's not just uh, individuals, you know, uh, being afraid to uh, talk to people who disagree with them. That's that's a tactic, right? That's in the playbook. Don't talk to them, yeah. right? Just ignore them, you know. Um, and any kind of critical inquiry from them uh, is defined as a violence. Mm-hmm. That's what we got to do. That that's in the playbook. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think I'll be able to talk to them anytime soon. I mean, if I do end up talking to them, then that would be a turning point in this fight.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that may in part answer my next question about a piece that you recently wrote for Newsweek titled Black People Who Oppose Critical Race Theory Are Being Erased. Yes. Explain this a little bit further. How how are those individuals, black individuals, who oppose critical race theory being erased, in your opinion?
3: Well, Black people who don't abide by the victim narrative um, or uh, critical social justice ideology or things like that they're bad for the narrative hmm. right they're 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 bad for the movement because they kind of weaken the movement a little bit, especially since the movement tends to essentialize black people right um, Nicole Haddon Jones has gone as far as to split black people into politically black and i guess non politically black uh, or something like that, but you know. It, Even that doesn't hold water enough, right? So they have to get rid of people like me. So they have to erase what I represent and what I'm saying and replace it with something so absurd that they can say, look at this idiot, right? It's a combination of straw man and ad hominem, if you're going to talk about fallacies. Um, The biggest difference between erase and replace and a straw man is that you're not just um, misrepresenting a person's words, you're misrepresenting the person's character, right? So you're doing both those things. Like, I have to totally erase who this person is, so that what he or she says is not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And I saw that happen to uh, Angel Eduardo, um, who is, you know, a part of the quote-unquote anti-woke movement, or you know, uh, whatever you want to call this. And um, I didn't like it. Uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and some of her uh, followers uh, tried to erase and replace him um, via Twitter thread. I saw that, got upset. I wrote the article. Um, So, what I was trying to do is have people say to themselves when they're reading: Is this an erase and replace situation? (laughs) Um, I should look into this myself. and I should make sure, to the best of my ability, that this person is being represented fairly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and when we think about, uh, you know, the culture that young people are being raised in right now, that that we do have this moment in history where we're, you know, critical race theory, all of these things are so present, especially in the field of education, mm-hmm. where you work. What needs to happen in order to really empower uh, the next generation? to be able to think critically, to, to understand that, that they can be victors, that they don't have to be victims. I know that's something you talk about, that yes. need to really uh, embrace that, that attitude of I am a victor. What do we need to do in order to empower young people?
3: Um, empowerment theory. Um, that's what I've been using. It's a book I'm working on. It's what I and Jason Littlefield will be talking about at the Parent United uh, Conference on Saturday. Empowerment theory, it incorporates three different components of empowerment, the intrapersonal, the interactional, and the behavioral. The intrapersonal uh, aligns with emotional intelligence, especially the uh, components of self-awareness and self-management, right? Um, so that you can enter into situations without, you know, being defensive, right? So that you can enter into situations with uh, what Otto Schrammer calls, calls an open heart, mind, and will. The interactional is just that, interacting with other people in healthy ways, right? Um, understanding the concept of rhetorical context, um, understanding the um, detriments of projecting Personalities on the people before you get to know them, right? And the intrapersonal and interactional align in that if you are individually sound, you know, socially aware, self aware, self uh, managing, and things like that, you're better able to not project onto other people and receive them as they are. The behavioral component, the third one, is basically the ability to work with others to get things done. You know, to um, uh, do some generative work, some productive work, right, to make the world a better place, to improve, right? In fact, improvement science uh, is a concept that goes well with the behavioral component of empowerment. You need all three of those to be truly empowered, according to the theory, right? Um, So, what true empowerment does is also it brings back the original conception of social-emotional learning. Social-emotional learning, or SEL, has gone woke. Um, As of December 2020, officially, um, uh, CASEL, which is an organization that is, uh, you know, dedicated to SEL, um, has uh, put on their website that, uh, well, go see it yourself, but the point is, you know, it's, it's everything I just said, insofar as it supports uh, critical social justice ideas, right? Um, we just heard at Parents United the um, use of mindfulness to soften kids' minds so that they can be indoctrinated. That's bad SEL. Good SEL is soften the mind so that you can receive people as they are and not as projections of some evil, you know, concept that you have, mm-hmm. right? So that got twisted. And empowerment theory is a way we can untwist that. And if I can, you know, uh, er, Jason and I can get more people aware of that, then that'll be a victory.
1: Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. How can our listeners follow your work, get your book, keep up with with your research?
3: Well, I'm on Twitter at Redders of York. Um, there is also Free Black Thought, um, freeblackthought.com. That's simple. And I don't know. I guess there's Google. I'm all over the place, you know.
1: It's um, a I, lot on Google. I can attest to Googling yes. you and a lot coming up.
3: Yes, yes, yes. I, um, okay, fine. I've Googled myself.
1: Okay? <laughs> we, we're all guilty just, of just that. To, it's Just, okay. just to we're see all guilty. what's,
3: you know, popping up and things sure. like that. And I'm, I'm like, uh, for, for what it's worth, the last time I did it was like two months ago. <laughs> um, but even then, I'm scrolling. I'm like, wow, I'm busy. <laughs>
1: You are
3: busy. (laughs) So, I mean, all you got to do is Google Eric Smith. Make sure you spell the Eric right, though. It's E-R-E-C.
1: Great. Eric, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining the show today.
0: Thanks for having
1: me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast.
0: You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow.
3: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Giney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.